I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're, um, well, I started to say we're teaching a series on spiritual authority and dominion, but I don't know if it's teaching so much as it is just me meditating out loud. There are some things that, uh, that the Lord has been dealing with me about and uh, some scriptures that I can't get away from. And um, uh, one of those particularly is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And so we're, um, we're talking about some things relative to dominion. Uh, Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words, God made man as close to himself as he could, as much like himself. It's not talking about appearance. It's talking about after the same kind. You're made in the image of God. God made you as close to an exact duplication of himself as it was possible to make. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Please notice, I know this is difficult for some people to accept, but the Bible could not be any more clear to state the fact, in stating the fact, that man was created for one and only one purpose, and that was to have dominion in the earth. Notice God did not say, let us make man in our own image so we'd have somebody to talk to. Let us make man in our own image so that we'll have somebody to fellowship with. You know, it's lonely up here in heaven. God didn't make man because he was lonely. It's impossible for God to be lonely. That would indicate that there was a lack in him and there is no lack. God made man for one purpose, and that one purpose is clearly stated and defined for him to have dominion. God made man to rule over the earth. Adam was created as the ruler of this world. The Bible says now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Satan is the god of this world, and that word god just literally means ruler. He has dominion here on the earth. But that's not the way God created it to be. Notice it says, And God said, Let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. Now there are... Um, uh, well, let's keep reading, and uh, then I'll back up and make some more comments. So God, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Notice the word subdue, and subdue it. It literally means to bring under your control. To tread down, to bring in subjugation or make subject to. So he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Bring it under your control and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Notice God said to man, if the earth gets out of line, do something about it. Now, we know that at the end of uh, the six days, God made a, an end of everything that he created. And he looked at everything and said it was very good. So, what does that tell us? That tells us that the earth was not in an unruly state. The earth was in a perfect state, in a perfect manner. It was, it was created in a perfect manner. It was in a perfect condition. But God realized that there was opportunity because it's, he created a living thing, living creatures, he realized that there was opportunity for things to get out of its original order. And notice he did not say to man, if things start going haywire, just call on me and I'll do something about it. He told man that it was man's job to do something about whatever needed to be done. He didn't even say, I'll be close by in case you need help. And notice something else. He did not say, now I'm giving you a magical stick. It has great powers so that if anything or anyone gets out of line, you just whack them with that stick and everything will come back in line. Why didn't God tell him how to subdue it? That would seem to be an important element, wouldn't it? I mean, if I'm Adam and God says, replenish the earth and subdue it, I want to know how. I want to know how I'm supposed to do these things that God is telling me to do. If he's put me in charge of things, I want to know how to make it work. Well, notice that it says, and God said. Let me read to you from uh, 
throughout the first chapter of Genesis, there are ten times where the Bible says, and God said. First was in uh, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and that was the first day. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And that was the second day. The third day is in verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, and God said, "Let let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was. Uh, that's the end of the third day. Then fourth day is in Genesis one fourteen, And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and days and years. That's when he made the sun and the moon. Uh, the, um, that's, the, that's the fourth day. The fifth day is in verse 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of the heaven. That was the fifth day. Sixth day is verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And then it says in verse 26, here's the eighth time that God says something. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now notice in verse 28, verses 28 and 29 are the last two times in the, in the first chapter where it says God says something. And these are, ty- these are uh, uh, descriptive of the things that God said to man after he created him. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Verse 29 is the last one, the tenth time. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which the fruit of the... I'm sorry. Upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree, yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Now, we know that Moses is the author of these things. This is... um, uh, This information is dictated literally word for word, specifically letter by letter. To Moses up in the mountain when he's talking with God face to face. Now, the question is, why did God go to such pains to say again and again and again, and God said? Why didn't you just tell Moses, now I told the earth or said of the earth this and this and this and this and make a list of ten things. There's got to be a reason that God went to such pains to say of himself, and God said And God said, and God said. And this is one thing that I think the majority of the church world has missed because it reveals to us why God did not have to tell Adam how to subdue the earth. Notice in verse 1 of Genesis, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, it says, and the earth was, literally became. It's not the word was, it's the word became without form and void. We'll talk about that a little bit later if we get to it. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. In other words, God exercised his authority over the earth that was without form and void. A wasteland, one translation says, many translations say. An, an empty, chaotic wasteland. God exercised his dominion over the earth by saying, let there be light. Let there be waters in the heavens and waters on the earth. Let there be lights in the heavens, stars in the sky. God exercised his dominion by saying, well, if God creates Adam, mankind, after his image and in his own likeness, literally an exact duplication of himself, then the reason has to be why he told us again and again, and God said ten different times, eight times regarding creation, two times regarding man's instruction, the reason it's got this there has to be to show us that we are to exercise dominion. Mankind was created to exercise dominion in the same way that God exercised dominion over the creation by the spoken word. 
So when he tells man, replenish the earth, be fruitful and multiply and subdue it, he's saying, use your words. He's saying the exercise of authority is through the use of words. Now, I want you to to, uh, uh, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 tells us something about authority. Gives us an example of a certain individual. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered. Now, the centurion means he's a Roman, he's, uh, a Roman soldier. He's captain of a, a, a force of 100 people. He's got 100 soldiers under him, under his command. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servants shall be healed. For I am a man under authority. Notice what he says of himself. Now we know that the end of the story is Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. He says, I hadn't found this kind of faith in Israel. In other words, the people of the covenant that should know how this stuff works are clueless. But this guy, who's outside of the covenant of God, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman, hated by the the Jewish people. This guy's got an understanding of it. He's got a handle on this stuff. And he explains why he has a handle on it. He says, for I am a man under authority. I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. One thing I'd like to make God marvel at is my faith. How about you? Not my sin. Not my unbelief. Jesus marveled at this guy's faith. And I say unto you, verse 11, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, talking about the Jews, those who were delivered the covenant, shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, what did the man believe? He simply believed that if Jesus gave the word, sickness would leave. He understood through Jesus' ministry and his familiarity with Jesus' ministry up to that point, he understood that sickness and disease were under Jesus' authority. He had enough information, enough experience, heard enough stories, witnessed something himself, whatever, to recognize the sickness and disease obeyed Jesus just like his soldiers under his command obeyed him. And so notice what the kind of faith that made Jesus marvel did. It says, all I need is the spoken word. All I need is the word from God, spoken, and that's enough for me to know that it will be done. Notice the connection between the spoken word and authority. Now we know what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 tells us about the, uh, uh, the God put man in the garden, told him to dress and keep the garden literally hedged and protected about. He gave him command that he, or freedom to eat of every fruit of the tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death is defined as separation from God. In other words, he's saying, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be separated from me. And then the serpent comes along. Satan takes the form of the serpent. Now, there's there's some uh, disagreement or different ideas, perhaps, is a better way to say it, about what it means about the serpent, whether that was a snake or not. Notice that, that God did not say, 
Now, Adam, I'm putting you here on the earth, but watch out for snakes. He told him to guard and protect the garden, dress and keep the garden, guard and protect it. He's letting him know there are enemies that can come against you. But the snakes is not his enemy. But Satan has to take some form, some physical form, in order to operate here on the earth. Spirits seek to embody or seek embodiment, whether it's by animals or humans or whatever, to gain expression. Spirits have to have physical form to gain that expression here on the earth. And so Satan took a hold of some physical form. Now, whether it was a literal snake or not, you decide for yourself. But he took some physical form and he talked to mankind, talked to Adam, to Eve first, with Adam standing right there. Now, what is Adam or what is uh, Satan's purpose in trying to lure them into disobeying God? Well, in order to, to, to rightly understand, I think we're going to have to talk about the devil for a little bit and see what the, what the Bible says. You remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, I mentioned a minute ago, it says, in the earth was without form and void. Literally, it means it became without form and void. I want you to look at a couple of scriptures with me. First of all, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. Isaiah 45 verse 18, it says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Now this verse is really important because the word vain in Isaiah 45, 18, he created it not in vain, is the Hebrew word tohu. Now, the, the phrase in Genesis 1, 2, where it says, and the earth was or became without form and void, one of the reasons we know that it became that way is because Isaiah 48, 15 just tells us God didn't make it like that. Without form and void is tohu vo bohu. It's not an unused term. It's not an archaic term. Uh, the family that spoke Hebrew today might say that their teenage son or teenage daughter's room is without form and void or chaos. Tohu bo bohu. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the, the pronunciation, but you get the point. Literally, it means things are a mess. Now, the word vain or the word Hebrew word tohu literally means wasteland. And it says God did not create the earth as a wasteland. Another translation says chaos. He did not create it in chaos. Well, in Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 45.18 says he didn't create it without form and order or in chaos or as a wasteland or a wilderness. But then Genesis 1.2 says that was the condition of the earth. It was a chaotic wasteland. Darkness moved upon the face of the deep. God had abandoned the earth that he created. There's no evidence of God. There's no presence of God. There's no touch of God left on the earth. Well, what caused it to become like that? It says that's not the way God made it. So what caused it to become like that? Now look with me over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 gives us a little bit of a hint of what the devil was like in his original form. Verse 8, uh, verse 12, Ezekiel 28, verse 12, it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him. Now, if you just start, if you're just reading casually, you'd think, well, there's a kingdom and a king, a physical king, earthly king, of the kingdom of Tyre. Jesus operated in Tyre and Sidon, the ge geographic areas of Tyre and Sidon in his earthly ministry. So that's what it was talking about. But notice what it says of him. It says, Say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, that's not some physical man. That can't be some earthly king. 
Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius and topaz and diamond, the beryl and the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold. And the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes, talking about his singing ability, the voice that God gave him. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. See, this is talking about Lucifer. This is talking about Satan before, the, before his fall, not before the fall of Adam. But this is talking about Satan before he fell. Lucifer was his name then. Verse 16, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth the fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Now notice what it says of Satan, Lucifer then. Notice that it said that he was an anointed cherub that covereth. In other words, he was, a, uh, he was a, a created being that had authority. Notice it says, by the multitude of thy, thy brightness, thine heart was lifted up. Spiritual pride was his original sin. We'll look at some other verses of scripture that say that he started saying, I will ascend, I will ascend above the heavens and exalt my throne above God's throne and so forth. So it's telling us over and over again that he was in charge of activities here on the earth. Now look with me over to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 gives us some more information about the devil prior to the Genesis 1 account of creation. We'll start reading in verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. Now notice he said, I will ascend into heaven, which means he was below heaven. The earth is below heaven, isn't it? Notice it says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That means he had a throne. You don't have a throne unless you have authority and and some position of ruling, do you? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So he had a place of authority and he had a place of rule under God. Under the heavens. Remember, remember what Genesis 1.1 says. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There was an earth here. That became without form and void. Not because God created it that way. But something caused it to be so. He goes on to say that Lucifer said of himself. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Which means he was below the clouds. Sounds like earth. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms? Notice verse 17. That made the world as a wilderness. The word wilderness is the word wasteland. Is this the man that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? That opened not the house of his prisoners. Now folks I would submit to you. That the devil's at work doing some terrible things. Here in the earth in our day. And in this age. He's not making the world a wilderness. 
And notice this is not talking about at this present time. It's talking about Lucifer. So what happened? Well, we know from what the Bible tells us that there came a point in time where Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him. There was a battle in heaven that probably lasted about two seconds. It wasn't some protracted thing where God just barely won out over the devil because he had more angels, had two-thirds of them instead of one-third of them. And he was cast out of heaven. He was cast out of the mountain of God. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 10. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Well, lightning doesn't float down from heaven. Lightning doesn't land softly on the earth. It falls with great force and quickly, instantly. There was no contest between the devil and God. The devil raised himself up in rebellion against God and God got rid of him. Now that has to be the, the, uh, the enemy that's still here on the earth when God makes Adam and Eve. And remember the, the, uh, the angels question God's plan to make man. What is man that thou art mindful of him? So the angels who were around prior to Adam and Eve's creation, the angels who were present at this time that's being described in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, they've witnessed then Lucifer's activities to make the world a wasteland. So now here's the devil coming on the scene with God's greatest and finest of creations, created works, mankind. Now, whatever was here and whoever was operating, it talks about the multitude of the trafficking, which means business and merchandising. It talks about destroying the cities thereof. So there had to be cities. So there had to be some kind of civilization. There had to be some kind of beings, not human beings, could have been human beings, But there had to be some kind of beings that were here on the earth that the devil influenced and finally destroyed in order for these scriptures to be true and accurate. Now, I don't know what they were. I have no idea what they were. But whatever they were, they weren't man. Because when God says, let us make man in our own image, the angels standing around, according to Hebrews chapter 2, said that one of them at least questioned, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Modern day translation might be, you're going to do what? You're going to make man in your own image and after your own likeness? You're going to make an exact duplication of yourself, which the angels are not? You're going to give him dominion? You're going to make him a little lower than yourself? The scripture says, what is this thing going to be? Well, Satan, standing afar, hears God's plan, sees his creation, and develops a plan of his own. If I can do away with the greatest and the finest of his created works, this being called man, then I can deliver a mortal blow to my arch enemy. I can hurt God at his, in the most severe way possible. I can do away with his finest. So what does Satan start doing? He comes on the scene to try to strip him of his authority. He tells man that if he eats of the tree that God commanded him not to, He'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, folks, I would submit to you that they already know good. There's really not much to gain. They already know good, and the only thing that they know is good. They know how to exercise the authority that God has given them on the earth through the spoken word. They know how to operate from their spirit. That's the only thing they do know. It's the source of their intellect. It's the source of their emotions. All they know is good. They do not have the capacity. Prior to the fall, they do not have the capacity 
to produce anything evil. They do not have the capacity to produce anything mediocre, anything imperfect. They only have God's ability to do that which is perfect and right and good. Now, folks, that's God's original intent for mankind. That's God's original intent for mankind's operation here on the earth. And God never changes. It's still God's intent today. It's still God's intent for you and your life to produce only that which is good and right and perfect. Nothing mediocre, only excellence. And he's given you the means and the tools through the work of Jesus. He's restored you to the place where it's possible. So what happens? Well, Eve is deceived. Adam is not. Adam's standing right there within arm's length while the devil's going through his speech, deceiving his wife. She eats of the apple, or the the fruit, whatever it was. We always consider it to be an apple, but whatever it was. She eats of the fruit of the tree and then hands it to Adam, and he does the same thing. He's right there. And their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked and ashamed. In other words, the first thing they became aware of was themselves, their emotions now began to operate from some source other than their spirits. They become self-aware. No longer are they God-aware. Now they're self-aware. Now the Bible says that now Satan is the God of this world. He stole that authority from mankind. But I want you to look with me over to James chapter 3. Because I want you to see something in regards to this. That when we put them together is very interesting. At least to me. Hope you'll find it to be the same. James chapter 3. I'm just going to start in verse 1 and read down through about verse 8. My brethren, he's talking to Christians. Be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. The word offend means to stumble. He's he's literally saying in many things we make mistakes. We as human beings are subject to make mistakes. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend or stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man. And able also to bridle the whole body. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying your body, which is still subject to the presence of sin and sickness and, and so forth. The fall of man that came about as a result of the fall of man. He said the key to gaining control or subduing yourself, your body, and so forth is to control your tongue. In other words, would you not agree? Maybe I'll put it, pose it as a question. Would you not agree with me that this is saying the same thing. The Holy Ghost inspires James to say the same thing in a different way that's already been related in, the, in Genesis. That man exercises authority over his whole body, literally his whole life, through the control of his tongue. The same command that God gave Adam, subdue the earth, is carried out in exactly the same way as it was then. So when Satan seeks man's authority, he has a twofold purpose. First, he wants the authority on the earth, the dominion on the earth for himself. He gained that. But secondly, if he doesn't create a situation for mankind to be, for it to be difficult, literally impossible prior to Jesus coming to the earth to retake that authority then he hasn't really gained anything so he's got to do two things he's got to operate on two fronts take the authority for himself and reduce man's greatest or reduce God's greatest creation man to a place where he's not able to retake that authority back from Satan 
That's what James is talking about. Let's keep reading. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Well, a horse has more power than any human being. How do we make horses do what we want them to do? How do we subdue the power of a horse and make that horse subject to us, human beings of lesser power? You put a bit in his mouth. That's the point that he's making. Then he talks about ships. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. We turn ships wherever we want them to go by a little rudder at the back of the ship. He's talking about your tongue is the rudder of your life. It controls your direction, controls your destination. Even so, in the same manner, in other words, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. One translation says it is set on fire of hell. Sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and, no, and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, let me ask you a question. At what point in time did the tongue become that? It couldn't have been that when God looked at mankind at the end of the six days and said everything was very good. It couldn't have been in this condition, the James 3 condition, when God made man in his own image and after his own likeness. Folks, what I want you to understand is very simply this. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they lost control of their tongue. The separation from God. Now the source of their existence is not from their spirits, which were in union with God prior to the fall, now separated from God. The source of their existence is now a physical existence, and they lost control of their tongue. What does that mean? That means that their tongue now produces good and evil. But the greatest influence upon their tongue at the point of the fall and there forward, from from that point forward, was the physical realm, not the spiritual realm. And so the majority of of that which is produced by mankind from the fall forward is evil and not good. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. It seems to me in in a lot of ways that uh, well how do I say this? Um, I, I don't have these services are a little different for me because I always come into a service and make sure that I come into a service with one thought that I want to leave everybody and I don't have that for these. It's as if I'm taking a number of different thoughts and putting them together because um, well, this is kind of how I study. I'll take different scriptures that the Lord puts on my heart. It's kind of like making soup. I'll put all these together and let them stew until it's ready. And it's, it feels to me like it's not ready yet. But I know it's making soup. So stay with me long enough and you'll get something from this. Matthew chapter 7. Well, let's start with verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell, for it was, it fell not, excuse me, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not 
shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew. Same storm, both cases. And beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now notice verses 28 and 29. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. He finished teaching about being a doer of the word and building your house on the rock. The people were astonished at his doctrine. Now what does the word doctrine mean? It means teaching. The people were astonished at his doctrine. For, because... Verse 29, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, the translators added the word in verse 29, the translators added the word one. Now, any translation is made up of two things. Every translation is made up of two things. Number one, the translator's understanding of the language they're translating from. Secondly, their understanding of the character and the nature of God. Because from the original Greek for the New Testament and the Hebrew for the Old Testament, there are many times where words can mean exactly the opposite depending on the way that it's being used. There's a word that's used in Isaiah 45 verse uh, 17 where God says, I make, uh, how does it say? It says, uh, I form the light and create the darkness. Well, the word create in the Hebrew can mean two things. It can mean to make, literally as we would use the word create in, in normal use, or it could mean to cut down as a tree. Well, how are you going to know which one it means? Well, in their case, the translator's case, they took their understanding of God in, and as the creator and said that God created the dark. But it could just as easily be translated, accurately be translated, I formed the light and cut down the darkness. Well, isn't that what happened when God said, let there be light? Didn't it dispel the darkness? So you see, the translations depend a lot on the translator's understanding of God and how he operates. If they've got a wrong understanding of how God operates, if they've got a wrong understanding of how Jesus operates... When he was here on the earth. Then that would greatly affect the translation. They understood Jesus. To be operating here on the earth. In his earthly ministry. As the son of God. Doing miracles and proving that he was the son of God. Which most of the church world thinks. The only problem with that. Is Jesus said that wasn't the case. Jesus rarely identified himself. As the son of God. He most often identified himself as the son of man. Now, why is that? Well, look at verse 29 and we'll prove it to you and show you why. For he, Jesus, they were, verse 28 says the people were astonished at his doctrine. Notice they were not astonished at him. Now, if Jesus was going around doing miracles to prove that he was the son of God, it would be perfectly understandable why everybody would be astonished at him. And they would say, wow, who is this guy? Or look at the stuff that this guy is doing. But notice it says specifically that they were astonished at his teaching. His teaching was not his miracle work. Why are they not astonished at his miracles? Why are they astonished at his teaching? Because Jesus put more more emphasis, a greater emphasis on his teaching than he did anything else. Now, what made them to be astonished at his teaching? What was there about this teaching that was so astonishing well verse 29 tells us it takes a little bit of study and discovery to to understand it which most people aren't willing to do but it's very clear it says for because he taught them as one having authority now let's take the word one out because that's not in the original translation for he taught them as having authority let's define these terms the word as i've got my uh uh Strong's concordance going in my iPad that I'm reading from. And in the Strong's, it says that this is an adverb of a compound from another word, which means this, which, how, that is, in the manner. So it means how or in the manner. So it says he taught them how or in the manner 
of having authority. And the word having, again from Strong's, means to hold. So if you put those two meanings together, the words in the Greek literally mean for he taught them how or the manner in which to hold authority and not as the scribes. What they were astonished at is because Jesus taught man his authority on the earth. And Jesus said clearly that the works that he was doing on the earth, the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he did while he was here was not because of the own, his inherent power or power that was his own because he was the son of God or for any other reason. He said that the power that he used to do miracles and so forth here on the earth was simply him doing what he saw his father do. He said of the works that I'm not the author of them. I'm not the one doing them. Now we understand that they were being done through him. But he's talking about the origin and the source. He's saying I'm not the one doing the works. It's my father in me that does the works. What is he saying? He's saying I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost to do this stuff. I'm not doing it because I'm the son of God. Jesus was the son of God earlier in his life and never did a miracle until after he was anointed by John and or anointed of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jesus was the son of God at age 29 and didn't do a miracle. It was when he turned 30 and after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. That's when his miracle work started. Why? Well, he said clearly the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me and enlist the things he's anointed to do. Now, if Jesus is trying to prove that he's the son of God, why didn't he stand up in the synagogue and say, the spirit of God is doing these miracles because I'm the son of God and I'm here to give you a message of salvation. That would have been a perfect way to get people to turn to God, wouldn't it? So here it's saying the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them how to hold authority. In other words, he's teaching them that through the keeping of the law of Moses, the old covenant, through the keeping of the law of Moses, there was a restoration made available to mankind, the people of God, children of Israel, to be restored to the place of authority that Adam lost, at least in a measure. Let me prove it to you again. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I know I'm running out of time, so I'll quit with this. Jesus sends out the 70. Gives them instruction what to do. Tells them to heal the sick and so forth. Now notice in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17... And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Through thy name. Now, here's the question. Jesus has not been to the cross. The name of Jesus, the name that's above every name, has not been conferred upon Jesus. It wasn't until after he was raised from the dead. The name of Jesus that you and I have an opportunity to use, in which he said, Upon his resurrection that all power, literally all authority is given unto me both in heaven and in the earth. That's not the authority Jesus is operating in in Luke chapter 10 or in his earthly ministry. That did not come until after he was raised from the dead following the cross. So how is it that the 70 and the disciples, the 12, are able to use his name to, to do miracles to set people free? Well, Jesus told us the answer. He told us that he was a man operating by the the instruction and the command of God. He's just a keeper of the law. A man anointed of the Holy Ghost. So the 70 return and say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us to thy name. Please notice the power of the old covenant. I'm not talking about what you've got. You've got something much, 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 much more than what they had. But the power of the old covenant was such that one covenant man was able to operate in the place of authority and dominion that Adam first had in the earth before he fell.
And not only that, but he was able to do so in such a manner that he was able to confer that authority, that spiritual dominion and authority, upon those that were his followers. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Luke ten eighteen. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I want you to notice something. Jesus refers back to the time when Satan was cast out of heaven, when he and a third of the angels rebelled against God. We've talked about that earlier in the service. He refers back to the time when Satan was cast out of heaven into the earth as a description or an explanation of the 70 operating in the authority in his name when he was here on the earth. He connects authority and their use of authority with Satan's fall. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. That's the word authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. That's a different word. That means ability. I give you authority to tread on all the power of the ability of the devil, of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Then he says this. He says something very interesting because we seem to operate just in in reverse on this. We want to magnify the, the power that we have over the devil and so forth. He said, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying the real key to authority is not who you can exercise that authority over. The real key to authority is the fact that you're reunited with the Father. Because the source of authority is union with God. The source of Adam's original authority was that he was alive unto God. The place that he lost that authority was when he became estranged or separated from him. Folks, the exercise of authority has always been through your words. And the command of God is the same for you today as it was when he put Adam on the earth. You put things back in line. You exercise your authority and subdue the earth. Now, he's not talking about us subduing one another. I'm not supposed to exercise authority over you. I'm supposed to exercise authority over the world so that it produces God's plan and purpose for me. Just like you are. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to believe in our hearts and say with our mouths. We thank you, Father, that we have authority in the name of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus has restored us authority, the authority that was originally given to Adam by defeating the enemy, the God of this world, and making an open show of him, displaying his defeat for all of eternity. Thank you, Father, that because we are alive unto you, made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we have that authority. That authority has been restored unto us and we have the ability to subdue the earth to accomplish your plan and your purpose in each one of our lives. Thank you, Father, that in the name of Jesus, it is so. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, you've raised us. Just as Jesus was seated at your right hand, we've been seated at your right hand. That place of authority in Jesus' precious name. Amen.